Well, good morning. When the first disciples in Jerusalem started preaching about Christ, the most scandalous thing they said, the most astonishing thing, was that he'd been raised from the dead physically. Literally, his body had come out of the tomb on the third day after his crucifixion. And one person who heard this was a man called Paul. And he thought it was the most outrageous thing he'd ever heard in his life. The Jews did not believe that any human being could rise from the dead before the end of the world. He bitterly opposed this idea. He was so angry with these crazy followers of the Galilean that he set himself against them and he wanted to kill them, he wanted to arrest them, he wanted to suppress them so that their teaching never got out from Jerusalem and died immediately uh, in the city of Jerusalem. As he was carrying this out, he was asked to go from Jerusalem to a nearby city of Damascus to find some followers of Jesus there. On the way, something happened that changed his life and arguably changed the course of history. It's called the Road to Damascus Experience. Paul was coming towards the city gates and a blinding light from heaven confronted him and he heard a voice, a mysterious, mystical, supernatural voice. And that voice, he understood very quickly, was the voice of Jesus, who he thought was buried in the ground, but he realized in that instant, he realized absolutely instantaneously that he'd been fundamentally wrong. And that this Jesus had actually risen from the dead. He was so shocked by this experience and something happened in his eyes so that he was temporarily blinded that he was led into the city and he had a few days to think about what had actually happened. But immediately he was convinced that he had made the biggest mistake of his life and that far from being in the ground, this Jesus had physically risen from the dead in a way which had never ever happened to another human being before, permanently raised from the dead in physical form. And he devoted his life from that point onwards to telling other people that Jesus had risen from the dead. It was a crazy thing to do. It was a crazy mission. Because this voice of Jesus told him he wasn't going to go back to the Jewish people, he was going to go to all the other ethnic groups in that part of the world. The Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, in countries that we would call Turkey, Greece, Italy, the Balkans. And what did they believe about life after death? So here's Paul, he's just about to tell them there's a Jew who rose again from the dead physically. That's the message he's going to give to them. What would they think? What did they actually believe about life after death? 
three things we can say for certain. Some of them, like today, just thought when you, when you die, that's it. You know people like that, don't you? That's the end of it. Just a physical life, nothing after death, all this religion is a load of superstition. There's plenty of people like that in the ancient world. And there were some people a bit more philosophical who thought the physical body isn't that good, it decays and the, the inner life, the inner soul is what really matters. So when you die, it's actually a liberation. You're going to find a greater life afterwards without a body. There was a philosopher called Plato who advocated this idea very firmly. And some people believe this. It's a bit like, but not exactly like, modern Buddhism, which advocates the view that the body constrains the spirit. And ultimately, when we die, there'll be a certain sense of freedom and liberation from the body. So that's what a lot of people, or some people believe. But most people that Paul preached to had the view that was taught to them from their temples and their cults and their religious centers and their priests. And they had a great mythology and a great idea about what happened in the afterlife, which involved a place called Hades. Now, this is a very depressing place. Let me just tell you about Hades as the ancient Greeks and Romans thought of it. It's dark. It's depressing. You go in there in a disembodied state. You regret the fact that you finished your life. You regret the fact that the next life is worse than the last life. You regret the things that you did wrong. There's no real hope. There's no real future. And for some people, there's punishment, there's gloom, there's depression, there's darkness. And that's Hades. Here's a picture from the Middle Ages of an artist trying to capture the spirit of what those people believed about the afterlife. A gloomy place. Hades. But Paul came, and the others with him, but let's talk about Paul now for a moment. Paul came with some totally different explanation. He said, the body is going to rise again from the dead. He spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, not only did Jesus rise again from the dead, but humans will experience a physical resurrection of their bodies in days to come. It was a very puzzling idea. And they found it very, very hard to get a grip of this idea. And he preached it for 18 months in a city called Corinth. He went there, one of the places he spent a lot of time at. And he preached about the resurrection of Jesus to the Corinthians for 18 months. Then he went away and they were so confused about what he'd said that they wrote Paul a long letter and said, look, Paul, you preached to us for 18 months. You showed us lots of great things about Jesus, but we really don't understand a lot of things. And they sent a letter with lots of questions to Paul about lots of different things. And one of those questions was a question about the resurrection. Because they thought, well, we love this idea about Jesus dying for us. That's great. But the physical resurrection, what's going to happen to us after death? We're just confused. It goes against everything we've ever heard of in our society. No one's ever told us 
anything like this. It seems crazy. No one could believe that the body that goes into the ground could be raised up again. They couldn't see the connection between death and disintegration and the loss of the body and and our physical form in the future. It just didn't make any sense to them. So they wrote a question to Paul. And Paul answered this question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he wrote this, this chapter and this letter approximately 22 years after the resurrection of Jesus. This account of the resurrection it was written before any of the four Gospels, almost certainly. It is probably the first written statement about the resurrection of Jesus in the whole New Testament and it's the fullest explanation anywhere in the New Testament about what we're going to talk about today, which is the resurrection of the body, the human body, especially the body of believers. And Paul wrote them a long, long chapter. If you look at it in its fullness, it's 58 verses. And he goes through all sorts of things. And we're going to start in verse 3 to verse 8. And this is him telling again the story about Jesus' resurrection. For what I received, he received from the other apostles, their teaching, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the ultimate, most important thing you could ever know. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, the leading apostle, his other name, and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me as to one abnormally born. And where was that? On the Damascus Road. 22 years, roughly, after Jesus died, Paul said, there was a time when Jesus appeared to 500 people. Some of them have died, but some of them are still alive. Now, if you live 22 years after today and people discuss this sermon, some of you will have passed away. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. (laughs) I'm not looking at the colour of your hair. And some of you will be alive, because 22 years is that kind of time span. Paul said, basically, you can go and check it out, because they're still around. So here he says to the Corinthians, about 22 years after the event, not only I had that amazing experience on the Damascus Road, but here are all the people that Jesus appeared to physically in a six-week period, in the period of the resurrection. No, it wasn't a resuscitation, a temporary thing. It wasn't an apparition of a ghost. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't mass hysteria. It was a physical reality, according to what Paul said. But the Corinthians were confused. They might have said, well, okay, I can believe that. But what about us? 
How does that event in the past connect with us as believers now? What are we to hope for after we die and in the future? And Paul answers this question very interestingly in verses 22 and 23. And I'm just touching a few headlines of this particular passage. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, that's the first person to be raised from the dead, and then, this is the important bit, when he comes, those who belong to him. That's the key phrase. Now last week we spoke about the second coming. And here Paul unambiguously says, the second coming is precisely, chronologically, specifically, in time, the exact moment when believers in Christ, other believers who followed God in the Old Testament period, those who had faith in God, will experience physical resurrection in a way that is similar to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will happen when he comes. Does that land with you? That's what he's saying to them. The timing of that is very clear. As he comes, and he emphasizes this again at the end of the chapter, as we'll see in a minute, when Christ comes again, something fundamental is going to happen in the lives of believers who've died. By the way, those who are still here, something fundamental is going to happen to their bodies. Wait a moment and we'll find out what that is. So, he tells them when the resurrection is going to happen. But then they ask another question, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? Because you all are asking that question. That's what you think, isn't it? That's what we all think. How do we connect this body and this life with that ultimate physical life that's promised? What is the connection? And how is it going to work? And Paul uses the metaphor here of the sowing of a seed. Your physical body is like a seed in this life. When you die, the seed goes to the ground, appears to have gone forever, but it has the DNA within it to produce the plant or the tree, the flower that comes. That flower comes in the resurrection. Now, to all intents and purposes, from a human point of view, when we die and we disappear, that's it. But from a Christian point of view, physical life is not just a temporary reality. It's going to be part of the eternal reality. There's an interval, but it's not the end, physically, when we die. Now, he goes on, and this is, these are the two, three verses I want to emphasize this morning. These are such important verses, verses 42 to 44, where he explains the difference between our bodies now and what our bodies will be like in eternity. By the way, this really is good news. Okay? The more pain you've got in the body, 
The more advanced in years, the more suffering you've experienced, the better news this is. Okay. I'm enjoying this passage a lot more than I did 30 years ago (laughs) when I first read it. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Let's look at this in two parts. Let's look at the the body as it is now in the next slide. I'm just highlighting here the four things that Paul says about your body now. You may or may not agree with this. Most of you will agree with it. Perishable. Prone to decay, decline, disease and death. This Monday, I went to the GP for an over 60s health check. With, thank you very much for the support. (laughs) With a very talented member of their staff, they measured my height, my weight, my blood pressure, my pulse, I had a cholesterol test, recently had a blood sugar test, and we discussed various forms of cancers that can um, be a problem for men as the years advance, I'll spare you the details, and we went through the whole of my essential physical health from the point of view of the NHS who want to keep me on the road as long as they can. Thank goodness for that. Now, it was a great experience. One or two things I have to sort out. A few lifestyle changes she recommended. Not severe ones, I'm glad to say. But I went away thinking, this is managing decline. Okay. I'm not, I'm not joking. <laughs> and I'm not talking about me personally, although that's true, but, you know, it's true of you as well, perhaps. Health care, in part, is managing a process of decline that we all know we can't avoid. But we can certainly manage, and it's very, very good to manage it. So I'll do everything she said I needed to do. but my body is perishable. And that happened in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and God said, in the day you sin, then you will die. In other words, in that era, you will experience the lack of capacity of the body to sustain itself permanently, amongst other things. And here's something that's painful to talk about, but we must be honest about it. It comes in dishonour. The body is dishonoured by sin. Because it is the human body that is the means by which we sin with our mouth, what we say, with our hands, violence, theft, anger. If we're involved in sexual relationships outside God's covenantal marriage pattern, our body is involved in dishonour. 
if we abuse our bodies in any way, if we overindulge or starve our bodies, if we put substances in our bodies, the things we hear, the things we say, the things we do, the body's involved in every aspect of sin. And so Paul says it's born in dishonour. And it's born in weakness. That means limited in strength and capacity. Now, I don't know about you, but I have this incredible ability to always think I can do more than I can actually do physically. Anyone else join me in that? I always think, well, I could just manage this extra thing here. Some are more optimistic than others about their capacities. I'm on the optimistic side. But in recent years, something started happening to me, which is quite humbling. I regularly go to London on the train to work with my Jubilee Plus work, come back from Euston uh, on the train regularly, and I think when I get on the train at Euston, great opportunity to do some reading, great opportunity to get online and catch up with a few things, great opportunity to write notes on the meetings I've been to. And the first stop from Euston is Milton Keynes, half an hour later. And this is what happens almost every time. I sit down in my seat in Houston, I work out who's around me, say hello to them, they're all buried in their books and their internet and their smartphones, I get my book out, whatever, five minutes later. (laughs) And the next thing I know is the sign of Milton Keynes Station, because that's when the motion of the train stops. And I wake up at Milton Keynes. So I've had to say to Jane, and she's always asking me how my journeys go, that as usual, I slept for the first half hour didn't used to do that. Strange, isn't it? We live, and you know this really well, with weakness. Our strength and capacity is limited by many things. I live with it every day because Jane, of course, my wife, has an illness, ME, which is characterized by physical weakness. So we live with that reality every day. It's a natural body. It's an ordinary human body like anyone else. Now, in 1975, when I became a Christian, I was at a boarding school and one evening I committed my life to Christ decisively. I remember very, very clearly doing it. I went into class the next day and I went into my standard lessons. Could the teacher see a change in my body because I'd become a believer overnight? No, he couldn't. Because my body was just like Tim's body, the guy sitting next to me. Because salvation comes in stages and the redemption of the body doesn't happen at the moment of our salvation. It's awaiting something future. My body didn't change, but my heart had changed, my spirit had changed. I'd experienced new life. So that's human life as we know it now. Do you recognize these symptoms of being human? Let's look at redeemed humanity. Let's look at the things that God promises. Our life in resurrection will be in a state of permanent physical wholeness. I want to speak to medical people and nurses and other health professionals here and say, you're going to be out of a job in heaven. No one's going to say to you, as they do every Sunday morning here, oh, I've got an ache here. Could you advise me on this? Where can I go for that? Which pill is best for that? There aren't going to be any hospitals or clinics in heaven. 
we're going to experience permanent physical wholeness. I had a very moving experience this week. I went to visit the oldest committed member of our church, a lady called Hazel Davies. She's 98 and a half years old, and until recently she would sit on the front row, just there, second row. She's in hospital, and I prayed for her, met her family. And when I speak to her, bearing in mind that her life may not have a huge period of time to go, we spoke about not only the hope of heaven, but I spoke to her even this week about the resurrection of the body. Because I believe it's part of our hope. It's in glory, filled with God's glory. The body will have a different look in a sense because God's glory will fill our human bodies. An interesting thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that Mary Magdalene, the first witness, didn't recognize him immediately. I wonder whether you've noticed that in the text. Maybe because of the luminous, glorious quality of Jesus that was this different from what he'd been before. In power tried to work out what this means exactly and I use this expression from going from strength to strength do you fancy having a body that goes from strength to strength whenever you go on a walk or an outing you know you can get to the end whenever you start a game you can know you can finish it and it'll be a spiritual body although fully physical it will be empowered by the Holy Spirit fully That's the physical body that Paul spoke about in this teaching. This is by far the most revelation we have on this issue anywhere in the New Testament. And we see the distinction between how we are now and how we are to be then. Now this begs an interesting question which isn't formally answered here. Obviously you'll look like you are in in your humanity. You'll be recognizable as Jesus was. But what age will we appear to be? Have you ever wondered that question? Theologians have speculated. And we're following the example of Jesus' resurrection. I think the best understanding is that our physical bodies and appearance will be as a young, mature adult before the ageing process has taken its toll on the human body. Many people who've lost children or infants or people who never reach maturity wonder about this question. I believe that they will experience resurrection in a mature young adult's appearance without any of the decline, disease and ageing as if it had never happened. As if It had never happened. And one of our problems is the way we remember people who've died very often is they've died, especially older people, having been ill or declined or suffered in different ways. And we struggle because we always want to remember them as they were. Have you noticed that feeling? We want to remember them as they were. That's a difficult thing for us to do. But in eternity, it won't be a problem. Because we'll see them in their human form, glorified, imperishable, without the impact of disease, decline, 
death and dying. This is a mystery. The Corinthians were confused and Paul explained it to them. He wanted to give them faith. And so we move on to verse 50 to 54, a famous passage, often quoted on its own, but best understood in the light of this whole chapter. And so this is Paul's final acclamation, his final statement to them. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What this means is that when Jesus comes again, it's impossible for us to receive the full kingdom of God in our present physical bodies. The physical body isn't, doesn't have the capacity to receive the eternal kingdom without being transformed. Flesh and blood now isn't enough. It's tainted by sin, it's filled with weakness, it has the signs of ageing and decline within it and all those things have to be removed from the physical body and that's why it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the eternal kingdom of God. So when Jesus comes again, something has to change. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, we'll all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, Jesus himself, in the passage we looked at last week, used the word trumpet to describe the acclamation that comes with the second coming. And here it is again. The last trumpet will be changed. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Now there's two things here going on. He's not only talking about those who died will be raised. He's also talking about us who will be changed and part of that is a reference to people who are alive at that time. So if you happen to be alive at the time when Jesus comes again, something's going to happen to you folks. I don't know whether I'll be here. I don't know when it's going to happen. But the physical body you have will experience the same transformation that will take place for those who died. Your body will change into the imperishable, eternal, physical resurrection body in an instant at the moment that Jesus comes again. Does that encourage you? So whether you died or whether you're still alive, at the moment, the last trumpet, the moment that Christ comes, the moment his glory is revealed, Every redeemed person is physically transformed instantaneously. That's what Paul teaches. And death is swallowed up in victory. Now there are two stages of the defeat of death. When a believer dies, whatever the circumstances... 
Death has not separated them from the living God because they go immediately into the presence of the living God. Their soul is in his presence from that moment. And we're going to talk in two weeks' time about present heaven and what the experience of believers is now who are in heaven before the resurrection. That's the question I haven't answered today. We've got a guest speaker who's going to come and answer that. His name is David Oliver. He's just written a book on heaven and it all came out of a tragedy in his own family. He's a a man in his 60s or 70s who's a mature Christian leader and one of his sons tragically died in the last couple of years through an aggressive cancer. And he asked himself searching questions. He's going to tell his story. It's a moving Sunday. You need to be here in two Sundays' time. But he's written a book because God spoke to him and showed him that most Christians don't really understand what present heaven is like. That's the topic of two weeks' time. But death is defeated in two stages. The first stage is the moment of death. The believer enters into the presence of the living God, which Paul says is a far better state to be than to be in this world. So to die is better than even to live. But the final defeat of death, when death is swallowed up in victory in this amazing expression here, the final defeat of death is not fully experienced when the believer goes into the presence of the living God. The final defeat of death is when Christ comes again and the physical resurrection of believers takes place and it is seen transparently and utterly that death was not the end for those believers and all the suffering of this life suddenly appears to be worth it death is swallowed up in victory the coming of Jesus is a massive victory triumphal procession with many dimensions this being one of the greatest some thoughts What about healing miracles? Let's take Lazarus. One of the greatest miracles recorded in the Bible, isn't it? Lazarus, the man who died and was in the tomb. He'd been in the tomb a few days and Jesus came because Mary and Martha, his sisters, beseeched him and he travelled several days and he came and he raised Lazarus from the dead. Isn't that amazing? What a wonderful miracle. Can I tell you something? The, The raising of Lazarus from the dead is only a shadow of the resurrection. It's only a prophetic indicator because Lazarus was raised to his natural body. He died again. Healing miracles are wonderful and amazing but they all point to something greater, which is the resurrection of the body, the hope of the Christian believer. And for some people, Christian hope has collapsed into just, well, I I hope to be in heaven with God in some ethereal way and just be saved. But it's much more robust and multidimensional than that. It is the hope of physical Resurrection. So it turns out there are a number of stages in our salvation. 
there are four main things that are part of the salvation process. The first is to be truly born again, to enter into new spiritual life. The second, a death, is that we enter into the presence of God. That's another form of salvation. The third is that we experience the physical resurrection when Christ comes again. But the fourth, even more amazing and beyond the scope of this talk, is referred to by Paul in Romans 8 when he points out that the resurrection of believers is the trigger for the recreation of the whole of creation. The creation waits in longing and frustration for the sons of God to be revealed. That expression means for the, for the resurrection to come. So when the physical resurrection comes, it is the trigger, it is the moment that where our whole creation is going to be recreated. Wow. We'll come back to that in a future talk. I want to end with the last verse of this chapter. I memorized this verse as a student and I commend it to you as one of the most encouraging verses for Christians to persevere in our callings, whatever they are in life, where Paul says these amazing words. Therefore, in other words, in the light of the resurrection, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. In other words, don't waver your convictions. Don't let your conviction, don't hesitate in your belief. Let nothing move you. Don't be pushed around by what other people say about the future or eternity. Let nothing move you. Christ was raised, you're going to be raised. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, we're building a kingdom here that will find its glorious conclusion in the day that he comes again. And it's not, we're not just going to be spectators when Jesus comes again. Those of us who died will experience a spectacular physical resurrection. Those of us who are alive will experience a spectacular physical transformation. The imperishable will take over from the perishable and death itself death itself the thing that modern man fears above everything else death will be swallowed up in victory let's have the musicians and let's stand We're going to sing the modern version of the creed that we often sing. And as we sing it, I encourage you to give attention to the statements about the resurrection that are so central to this song. <laughs>